Good morning, church. Man, it's good to see you here today. Anybody excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Man, can we put our hands together and praise the Lord just for who He is and His greatness and His goodness? Thank the Lord for... Man, I am so, uh, man, I'm so encouraged by our church, and if you are not aware of this, you probably are not aware, but um, I've been trying to, to lead our church over the past few weeks and uh, past few months, and our elders have as well, in being a church that praises God, to be a church of praise, that, that praises Him for who He is and what He's done, that we should be a people of praise. And I've been uh, so encouraged by what the Lord has been doing, specifically at our night of worship that happened a couple weeks ago, and then uh, just the exuberance and the expression that we are having together as a church when we praise. Um, God's uh, people are supposed to be a people of praise, all right? When you show up to church, it's not supposed to be a funeral, all right? We're celebrating something when we come together, and so, uh, man, I, I hope that there is just an excitement that is in you and an excitement that is in your heart as we come together and we celebrate this King that we have and this Savior that we have in Jesus Christ, um, our Lord. And so, I'm excited that you're uh, here today. I want you to uh, join me as we, as we pray as I begin, and before we dive in, let's pray. Father, we thank you today for... Um, your goodness to us, and your grace. We thank you for the way that Jesus has come. We thank you that we get to know him, see him, experience him. Uh, God, I pray that you would uh, fill us today with your presence. Would your spirit be here? Would you move in and through us? God, we need you to show up in our lives. God, we walk into this room as needy people, uh, needing you to, to meet us where we are. And so, God, we just, we just ask and we beg that you would uh, join us today, tangibly, through your spirit and through your power, as we meet and as we worship, as we look at your word, and we say this in Jesus' good name, amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and grab your Bible and open it to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 as we walk through the Gospel of Mark to look at Jesus and who he is and what it means for our lives, and we take a look at his kingdom and how we get to be a part of his kingdom. Interesting fact here is we're jumping into Mark chapter 11. The entire gospel of Mark is about Jesus and his life and his ministry, but interestingly enough, the last of five chapters of the gospel, actually I guess 6, 11, can I, can I count? 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. The last six chapters of the gospel of Mark encapsulates one week in the life of Jesus. And so the entire gospel up to this point has covered a few years of Jesus' journey, of Jesus' ministry, but now as we enter in chapter 11, we are within the last few days, commentators say, of the final week, of the final few days of Jesus' life. And here he, at, here he is on his way, headed to Jerusalem. He's, he's anticipating his final destination, and as he comes and as he shows up. This is where we find ourselves today, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And it's a fun story, by the way. Um, I love it when there's fun stories in the Bible. Anybody else? Um, I, I, I like it. Um, is anybody here today? Um, um, I, I don't, I, 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 it's just me up here? Um, I, like, I like fun. I like it when it's fun, cool stories. This is one. This is so bizarre. It's so unique, and, and I, love the way that it, um, I love the way that it goes. It says this, Mark 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, 
you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. This is just so bizarre in my mind. I don't know if you're there with me or not, but I just find it so interesting, the bizarre scenarios and situations in which Jesus often sends his disciples, often sends his followers um, into. Now, Jesus, there are a thousand different ways if Jesus needed something that he could get it, right? You with me? I mean, he, he isn't limited by resources, he isn't limited by opportunities, he isn't limited, he isn't shorthand on people and possibilities in order to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. And Jesus, in this situation and in this scenario, uh, when he needs a colt, which would also have been like a donkey, a small horse of some sorts, probably a donkey, he needs a donkey, he decides to send his disciples in and get into town and find a donkey this way. Now, this is just completely amusing to me. All right, Jesus is going to tell two of his disciples, I need you to walk into town, go ahead of us. When you show up, when you enter town, pass through the gates, there's going to be a post, and there's going to be a little donkey tied to the post. All right, at that point, I'm asking questions. Jesus, where? Which, which gate? Um, sorry, uh, which, uh, what, you just, there's a donkey. There's going to be a donkey there. Yeah, um, and so when you, get, when you get there, when you walk in, you're going to find a donkey, and when you get to that donkey, uh, just go ahead and take it, take it, and bring it back to me. Um, and if anybody stops you along the way, just say that the master, the Lord, tell him that I, Jesus, I, I need it, and that we'll bring it back later this afternoon. Right? I'm sorry, Jesus, hold on. Um, one more time, if you could help me understand uh, the scenario. I'm going to walk into this town, and there's a theoretical donkey that I'm going to walk into, and I'm just going to grab. It doesn't belong to us. We didn't pay for it. It isn't ours, but I'm just going to be able to walk away with that donkey, and, and, not, and no harm, no foul. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yes, that is what I am trying to tell you. You notice something interesting about this scenario? Jesus is always putting his disciples into situations in which it's bizarre and it doesn't make sense. Jesus is always putting his disciples into situations. As I said last week, it makes you look like a fool when you're with Jesus. Like it just doesn't make sense. Why in the world would you ask me to do this, Jesus, when it doesn't make sense like this? I'll, I'll, I'll say it this way. Following Jesus uh, sometimes uh, means sometimes that you will look like a fool. Uh, there's just no way around it. <laughs> I wish I could stand up here this morning and say, hey, when you follow Jesus, you're going to look like a rock star. I wish I, wish I could say that, but I, I can't say that. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be obedient to him, if you want to really do what he asked you to do and call you to do um, what he says, it's going to be bizarre. So we baptized a little girl this morning at our 9 o'clock worship gathering. Trusted Christ, following Jesus dunk her in the water. It's her outward profession of an inward sign of what it means to follow Jesus. And whenever we baptize people, we ask them two questions. One, do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? Like that you didn't do anything. It's Jesus, all Jesus. Yes. All right. Number two, do you commit to go wherever he tells you to go and to do whatever he calls you to do? If you say yes, you better be careful right there. Jesus calls you to do some things and to go into some places that don't make sense, that actually make you look like a fool to the watching world. I'll give you a couple quick stories. 
There's another story in the Gospels where there is a conversation between Jesus and some others. They need some money. They're supposed to pay taxes. Jesus is all out of bank. He ain't got nothing on him. He is broke as it can be. He tells his disciples, anybody else got any cash on them? You got anything? They're completely broke. Nobody's got anything. He says, okay, this is, this is what we're going to do. Um, I, need, I need you guys, the disciples, get in your boat, go out into the water, and fish, throw a line. It says a hook. Throw a hook into the water, and you're going to catch a fish, and when you get that fish, there's going to be a coin in the fish's mouth. Jesus, come on, man. I mean, like... I was with you yesterday, but this is a little too much for me, all right? This is, I, Jesus, if, if, I, I hate to remind you of this, Jesus, but um, I am a professional fisherman. I've fished my entire life, and Jesus, if, if you aren't aware, coins don't live in the mouths of fish at, at all. Imagine them getting in the boat, being like, Guys, this is dumb. This is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. We're like going, like let's just do, let's just do what he says. Throw the line out, catch a fish. First fish they pick up. There's a freaking coin in the fish's mouth. Like, (laughs) what was Jesus doing? He just wanted to test their obedience. He just wanted to see if, in that situation, they would obey. This wasn't really a point, but I'll, I just thought of it. Um, what if the situation in which you are in is just a test from God to see if you will obey him? Like, what if, and I don't know the situation that you're in, I don't know the circumstances, I don't know how bizarre this may seem or that may seem or what you might be going through or what you might be facing, it might seem crazy, but is there a scenario in your life perhaps where Jesus is just wanting you to obey, to step out in obedience? Uh, obedience is sometimes a beast. When you're following Jesus, it isn't easy. There's another story in the Old Testament that I love, that I'm fond of. Um, there is a ruler. He's a commander of an army. He serves the king of Syria. His name is Naaman. Naaman has all the money, all the wealth, everything that he could ever want. He's got all the soldiers, all the warriors, all the horses, all the chariots, all the goods. He's got everything that he could possibly want. There's only one problem with Naaman. He is covered from head to toe in leprosy. His entire body is plagued with leprosy, a skin disease that would literally eat away at your body until you died. Naaman has seen every physician. He has seen every doctor. He has done everything necessary. He's tried to do everything within his power to get healed, to get cleaned of this disease, but he can't do anything. Where there's a little servant girl that's in his home who is actually kidnapped from God's people, Israel, and is now in Syria, and she says, uh, Naaman, I think I know a solution. My God, in which I serve, he has the ability to heal. And there's a prophet named Elisha. He heals people all the time. You could probably go to him, and he would heal you. So Naaman's like, well, that's, okay, well, let's, let's, let's do that. And so he gets his men, he gets his chariots, he gets his horses, he gets treasure, he gets jewels upon jewels upon jewels. We're going to have to pay in order to get this healing. He goes to Elisha. He travels through the desert. He gets to Elisha's house, and uh, Elisha's servant comes in from outside and says, Elisha, Mr. Prophet, um, there is a guy outside the house. His name is Naaman. He is loaded. I mean, like, I mean, we could, uh, the general fund could really use the offering that he, he could help us meet budget this year, uh, Elisha. Um, and he's got leprosy, and he wants to be healed, and he heard about you and our God, and he thinks that you could heal him. What do you think we should do? I love this. Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. Elisha just sits in the house. He's like, 
Um, go tell him to dunk himself seven times in the Jordan River and he'll be healed. You sure, boss? You know, that's what you want me to do? Okay, and so he, 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 walks, back, he walks back out to Naaman. Hey, Naaman, um, uh, Elisha, the prophet, he says that the way that you're going to get healed is you go down to the Jordan, Jordan River um, and you have to dunk yourself seven times. And Naaman is like, he's furious. He's like, are you kidding me? That's what you've got for me? I traveled all this way and that's what you want me to do? I am not doing that because it's a dumpy little creek. It's a muddy river that is not the nicest thing to go dip yourself into. I am not, I'm not doing that. And he's like, let's get out of here. And he literally starts to leave. And all, all the servants are like, hold on, but, but maybe you think we should at least try. I mean, maybe we should just, let's just give it a shot. And he's like, I'm not doing that. Do you know who I am? Do you know that I am a commander of this army? Do you know that? They're like, we should just give it a try. He finally breaks down. He doesn't want to live his life, the rest of his life with leprosy. He walks down to the Jordan River with everybody watching. I imagine wondering, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. Once, twice, three times, this is stupid, four times, five times, six times, seven times, and he comes out the water and his skin is soft as a baby's behind. It's like brand new skin and he's completely healed. God wanted to do it God's way. God wanted to see if Naaman would be humble enough to be obedient. And Jesus, we see all the time, he's sending his disciples into crazy, bizarre situations that don't make sense, and the only thing that you have to do is obey. Obey. Is there a situation in your life today that you just need to obey in? Perhaps the Lord has been moving in you financially, something about generosity, something about a coworker, something about a relationship, something about your home, something you should sell, something you should give up, something that you should give to God, something you should let go of, something that has been burdening you and plaguing you. Is there a place in your life where obedience is the answer? Because obedience is a gift. It's a gift. I, I hate um, pastoral confession. Um, I hate when God calls me to be obedient. I, I legitimately do. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to do it God's way. I would rather do it my way. God, my way sounds way more fun than your way. But is there a place where God is leading you perhaps today to be obedient? Following Jesus means sometimes that you look like a fool. You know what I... What I struggle with, even I struggle with this week. Um, why am I so concerned about what I look like? Why are you so concerned about what you look like? We are so concerned that we might look like a fool. We're so concerned that we might look odd. Why are we so concerned about what other people think of us. So even if you're not a Christian here today, maybe that you are a person that is seeking, investigating Christianity. You came with a friend. You're here checking this out, this crazy thing called Christianity, and you're here today. Here's what's true of all of us, even yourself. There's something inside you that needs validation. 
There's something inside you that needs justification, needs meaning, needs value. There's something deep inside you where you need someone else, someone outside yourself to say that you matter. You have a desire in you. You have a leading desire that you cannot get rid of that is in you saying, I need to matter to somebody. Do you know why you have that? You have that because God made you that way. You are hardwired to be somebody in need. You are hardwired to need validation. And validation, true validation, only comes from God himself. And when you have all the validation that you need from God, it releases you to feel like you need validation from other people. Man, I just, I just, I'm preaching to myself this morning, by the way. Uh, I, str- I struggle mightily with what I look like to you, physically, not just physically, but personally, relationally, like. I, I, str- I struggle with how you view me. Will you like me? Will you think I did a good job? Will you stick around here? Will you go somewhere else? I need your validation. It's only when I recognize that all the validation I ever need in the world I already have in Christ frees me to need your validation told one of our pastors this morning, half, half the task of preaching is just getting out of the way. Half of, half, half of my week is just consumed with taking Ethan out of the picture and removing my, not worried about what you will think, about what you will say, about what you will post, about what you will email, about what you'll say to your friends, about what you'll say to your spouse on the way home about the sermon. Like half of the job is just forgetting about all that and caring less about that. And caring about what God says and what God wants for us, even if that means I look like a fool. Because sometimes following Jesus means you look like a fool. Verse 4. Verse 4 says this, And they went away and found a colt tied at a door uh, outside in the street, and they untied it. Had to be really awkward. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. This is so bizarre. Like, I don't know which of the disciples it was. Um, I imagine it's Peter because Peter had a rough go. If, if I'm on the way, if, I, if I'm on the way there, it, two disciples, all right? I'm like, I'm not doing the cult thing. You're doing the cult thing. Like, I, it's not, no, no I'm, not, I'm not doing, the, you're doing the cult. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. You're doing, I'm not going to get in trouble. They'll send me to jail. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do this. All right, so I figured the way that they decided was paper, rock, scissors. All right, paper, rock, scissors. Okay, I'll do it. I got, I, I got to do it. They walk, I, I, I'm sure they were like um, stealth ninja mode, like walking, like trying to like, I'm not doing anything here today. I'm just walking randomly uh, beside a colt that's tied to uh, the door here and um, unties the colt and like, okay, let's get out of here. And uh, as they uh, start, excuse me, um, what are you doing? I'm taking your colt. Why are you taking my colt? Jesus said he needs your colt. And they're like, okay, we're good. All right, we're good. I'm, I'm like, how does that happen? Like, this is it, exactly what Jesus said he would do. It happened. 
Exactly the same way. Verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks or their coats on it, and he sat on it. Now, at this point in the story, I hope that you're wondering, what's the deal with the donkey? All right, I just, I, I don't understand Jesus, donkey, the town, what's, what exactly is going on here? It's a good question. Why in the world does Jesus need a uh, donkey? Um, if you look back with me in Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 9, what is happening here is something very huge for the people of God, understanding in Hebrew thought the kind of Messiah and the kind of king that would come. We read about it in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And everybody's like, yeah. And then it says, humble and mounted on a donkey. Sorry, typo. um, On a colt, the foal of a donkey. What in the world is going on here? Jesus is the coming king. He's the coming Messiah. And typically a king, whenever a king would enter a town, he would come with his entourage. He would come with everything that was magnificent about him. He would have chariots, and he would have horses, and he would have jewels, and he had gold, and he would have everything that was representative of his might and of his power and of his valor, so that when he came into town, everybody else would feel inferior because of his superiority, and they would recognize this king as mighty. Jesus is different, though. Jesus shows up, and he's like, I need a donkey. Like, Jesus could have done this any way that he wanted. Jesus could have come in in any way, shape, or form that he wanted, but Jesus decides that he's going to come in on a little donkey. See, here's what's true about uh, Jesus. Jesus is the king, but he's not the kind of king we're expecting. He's not the kind of king you are expecting. Jesus is coming, and he is fundamentally turning the world upside down. Jesus is coming unlike any king the world has ever known. And what the people were expecting, what they were anticipating, the kind of king that they wanted Jesus to be, was not what they got. Their expectations were not met. Just out of curiosity, any of you get upset when your expectations are not met? Anybody? I I am a person that has crazy high expectations. (laughs) Just ask my wife. I have like expect. It's it's a problem. I think. I think I've got a syndrome. Like I have expectations for my expectations. Like I mean, it's just like it's it's bad. I remember the first time that I ever uh, tried a deep fried Snickers bar. Anybody ever tried one of those before? Yeah. I was thinking, wow, this is amazing. Uh, a deep anything deep fried is just going to be majestic. And I thought, I love Snickers bar. They're my favorite. Why don't we take Snickers bar and put it in dough and fry it? That sounds like a great idea. This will be absolutely amazing. And I could just think and imagine about the chocolate that would be on my tongue and how beautiful it would feel, and I would enjoy that, and it would just be momentary bliss. And I ate the deep-fried Snickers. That was the worst thing I ever tried in my life. I think it was, I think it was terrible. Like, you just totally messed up a Snickers bar for crying out loud. We need to stop this process right now. This is wrecking humanity as it stands. We need to cut this out. I hate when my expectations are not met. Jesus often 
doesn't deliver on the kind of expectations that we want him to deliver on. He, he, he's, he's a different king. He's a different kind of king. And we wanted a king who would rule the world. And we wanted to be a nation. We wanted to be a people. We wanted to be a country that every other country and every other nation would bow down to us. And we would rule and we would reign and we would dictate and we would be dominant over everybody. And Jesus says that that's not how, that's not how I come. I don't, I don't come that way. I'm not the kind of king you were expecting. I love the way that Jonathan Edwards says it. It's a beautiful quote. He says it this way. There do meet in Christ infinite highness and infinite accessibility. Infinite justice, yet infinite grace. Infinite glory, yet infinite humility. Infinite majesty, infinite transcendent meekness. Absolute sovereignty, yet perfect submission. Infinite all-sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on God. He is a lion. He is a lamb. He is a rock. He is a pearl. He is a mighty captain. He is a tender lover. He is a fragile flower. He is a mighty tree of life. In Jesus, we find true, ultimate humility in him. Jesus even has the audacity, he even has the ability to come as a king in humility. And here's what's true about Jesus' kingdom. Jesus always rides on the back of humility. Jesus always rides on the back of humility. Just curious in your own life today. Whenever you walk into the room, who are you normally thinking of? Whenever you show up to work, enter the office, see your coworkers, who are you thinking of in that moment? You come home after a long day's work, enter the house, family, spouse, kids, roommates, whatever the situation is, who are you thinking of in that moment? When you walk into this room on Sunday, who are you thinking of? Rick Warren says it this way, I love it. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's the ability to be freed of thinking and worrying and anxious about your own self in the moments of the day. Jesus enters in humility. Why? Like if he could have done it a different way, if he could have done it a different form or fashion, why did he come in humility? Jesus was able to come in humility riding on the back of a donkey knowing he is the son of God who helped create the universe. He's able to ride in humility because he isn't worrying about the people around him validating his own significance and worth in his life. That's already been taken care of. He doesn't need it from the people that are around him. Jesus, it's easy for him to ride in on a donkey because Jesus has already grown up in a little dinky town called Nazareth. It's easy for Jesus to ride in on a donkey because he already has a mother and has been born to a mother who is a single mom. 
Jesus doesn't have any issue riding on the back of a donkey because he was born in a manger. Jesus doesn't have any issue riding on the back of a donkey because he already left heaven and every heavenly luxury to come to earth for you and for me. It's his life. It's the way that he lives. It's the way that he operates. From the very beginning, Jesus has existed for eternity past. In Christianity, we call this the Trinity, a Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they have existed for eternity past in true ultimate humility. Showing up in the relationship together, not primarily concerned about their own well-being, but the well-being of the other. Not worried about whether or not they need or going to receive validation from the Father or whether he's going to receive validation from the Spirit. He already has that. It's already done. Which allows him to therefore enter a situation, enter any moment, enter any situation, not worrying about his own good and well-being, but rather about the good of others. Humility happens when you understand your place with God. Did you know today that God already accepts you in Jesus Christ? Jesus isn't, I mean, God, God isn't like, he's not like fiddling his thumbs. He's like, I hope they're not going to screw it up today. He's not like waiting for you to make a mistake and then cross you off the list. He already accepts you in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for your salvation. Why do we care what other people think about us? Why are we so consumed about that? You know, when you get to heaven, um, you know, when you get to heaven, it isn't going to be about you. We're not like going to, we're not going to try like one up the Joneses, you know? Oh, but we have more square footage in our house than you have in. You're completely set free of that. I kind of I wonder, like, what our attire will be, you know? I spend so much of my day just wondering what I'm going to wear. It's bad. It's an, it's an issue. Like, I'm like, this morning at 5.30, I was standing in front of my closet like, hmm. Like, for five minutes, what should I wear? If I wear this, people will think, oh, I'm not really that official. If I wear this, they won't think I'm really that professional. But if I wear this, it's a little too, uh, little too high and mighty. People will actually be offended by that. Like, why do I give a rip? Like, what, what you, why am I so concerned? Why, why am I so concerned about that? Because I'm concerned about validation from you. And Jesus, he enters in humility. Every room that Jesus walks into, he's not worried about his own well-being, but he's worried about the well-being of others. He sets up his kingdom, not with a huge throne for the world to see, but he just comes riding on a donkey to serve and to give his life for you and for me. He's a different king. He's not the kind of king that we expected one of the ways that you know that you've experienced the kingdom of God, one of the ways that you know that you've experienced God, one of the ways that you know that God has met you and changed you is that you're freed from the need to elevate yourself above others. And Jesus here is not trying to elevate himself, but is actually trying to lower himself. Look at me, verse 8. 
This is the end. It says this. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is one of those interesting words. We sing in worship songs, but we don't know what we're singing about. Like, Hosanna. I don't know what that word means, but Hosanna. You're like, uh, like I'm not sure what we're singing right now, but it sounds like an interesting word. What does it mean? Um, it's true, isn't it? It's true. You know you do it. I do it too. I do it too. I have the benefit of studying the scripture before today. Hosanna is actually a transliterated word, which means it isn't an actual original English word. It's been translated from Hebrew and then into Greek and then also translated into English, which often happened occasionally where the Old Testament Hebrew words, they were so magnificent, they were so big, they were so bold, we didn't actually have an adequate word that defined everything that that word meant. And so this Old Testament word, Hosanna, we just transliterated it into Greek, and then we transliterated it once more time into English, and we say, Hosanna, you're actually saying a Hebrew word whenever you say that. The word Hosanna, it means save now, we pray. Save now, we pray. And I can just see Jesus coming down this road, and the palm branches and the other branches are, are thrown down onto the ground, and people are throwing their coats down, and they're shouting, Hosanna. They're recognizing, they're saying, we need a Savior. They're saying, save us now, we pray. Save us now. They're welcoming the king into their life. They're asking for the king to come into their situation and to make a difference. They're asking him to come and make a change in their life. Has there ever been a point in your life which you recognize that you needed a change from God in your life? Has there ever been a time in your life where you were needy and you were desperate and you recognized that you needed to say, Hosanna? Man, I look at my own life. I would be in, I'm already a mess, but I would be an absolute mess um, without God. I, I might be dead by now. But God brought me to a point in my life where I recognized I needed him. And without him, I couldn't do this on my own. I looked at Christ and said, Hosanna, save now, we pray. Perhaps you're here today, I don't know your story, I don't know your background, I don't know your situation, and what a gift it would be today that you walked out of here knowing that God can change you, that God can make a difference in your life. It doesn't matter who you are, there aren't like certain categories of people that God can make a change in people's lives. It's like anybody, anybody is welcome, the invitation is to all. This is the beautiful thing about Christianity. To all who will come and repent and believe in who Jesus is and what he has done, God will save you. He will change you. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. And Jesus has come and he's lived the life that you couldn't live, died the death that you should have died, and then conquered the grave that you couldn't conquer. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. His name is Jesus. Will you welcome the King? Will you welcome the King into your life today? He'll change you make a difference for the rest of your life, I invite you to receive him today. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus and what he has done in our lives and the change that he has made that we do not deserve. Wow, what a king. What a, 
humble king that we get to follow. What a humble king that we get to know. What a humble king that isn't so high and so far above us that we don't get to know him, but he comes down even on the back of a donkey and enters our turf, enters our space to invite us to him. Father, we love you today and we thank you for Jesus and the humble king that he is. We say this in Jesus' good name. Amen.